the Mind Body Connection podcast. The body and mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Hey guys, welcome. It's six o'clock on Tuesday. I'm in my pretend blue room once again. Uh, you can see the green screen there a little bit. Let's <laughs> hide that. Um, I hope you're great. Um, whether you're watching this live with me on a, a beautiful summer's evening, a Tuesday, or if you're watching it on Catch Up, welcome. This is the 12th in the series of seminars designed to boost your health. And today we're focusing on one of my uh, favorite subjects, which is stress. Tonight I'm drinking um, vodka. Every little helps. Okay, so today we're talking about stress and particularly how to de-stress. And it's so important because of course, the linkage between how stressed you are and activation of your sympathetic nervous system, which long-term activation will suppress, sedate, interfere with your immune system. Also interferes with all sorts of other parts of your body, as you well know. Um, the best way to get a sense of what the sympathetic nervous system does and what the stress response is, is you know when you're a kid and you're leaning back on your chair, it's got four, four, four legs and you're on the back too, and you're just rocking backwards as cool as you want, and then you go a little bit too far back and you suddenly go into that startle response. <laughs> when that happens, you can almost feel your nervous system kind of going as you get in touch with a little blast of adrenaline and a stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic nervous system, there's nothing sympathetic about it. It's not uh, kind and gentle. It's all about activation. Uh, and its opposite friend, the parasympathetic, is the part that calms, rejuvenates, restores. Um, but today, our focus is all going to be about, uh, <clears throat> about stress and how to deal with it. <clears throat> I've been asked a lot of questions recently, both uh, after the last call and also on the uni course I'm teaching about emotions and their relationship to stress and also their relationship to reality. Um, welcome to all those people on the on the call. Great to see you. So uh, it was an interesting conversation that uh, <coughs> Dalai Lama had with, I think it was Richard Gere, the famous Hollywood actor. And they're having a chat. And Richard Gere says, <clears throat> I, I think that um, one of the things I find most difficult is the whole idea that emotions aren't real because, you know, when you feel angry, when you feel stressed, it's it's completely real. And the Dalai Lama laughs, as he often does. And he says, <clears throat> well, it's not, they're not real. You know, we, we, we have real hormones. We have real nervous systems creating experience. But he says, if you're in a movie and your job is to convince people that you are a bank robber or a cowboy or something, hitman, then you step into that role and you completely inhabit it and you deliver that performance. You know, the emotions you have, are they real? Well, they may be, but they're not really real because you're pretending to take that role and you do it very well. You can step into that. And Richard Gere kind of goes, yeah, I guess that's true. And we've all had that experience. And one of the things I often talk about, hello, Claudine, que tal? Como estas? Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I often tell a story about is 
Imagine you have a friend, right? A really good friend, like many of my other people on the call today. And you see them in the morning. This is imagining that we actually go to work and we see them, of course. Remember that, guys. Anyway, you see them in the morning and you wave at them. You go, hey, how you doing? And they look at you, turn away and walk in the other direction. And you're like, that's a bit odd because I waved at them. Yeah, never mind. You're a little bit upset, but not too bad. But later on, you just send them a text. Hey, hope you're good. Maybe have a, ca a coffee later. Send it. And you know, on uh, iPhones and stuff, it tells you they've received it. Yeah, because the little tick saying it's been received. But you get nothing back. So a little bit later on, you WhatsApp them. Hey, how's it going? Hope everything's fine. Nothing comes back. Then you email. I'm oh, just, just wondering if everything's okay because, you know, I've tried to con contact you a few times and not get anything back. Are you all right? Nothing back. So you ring them immediately. The phone gets the call gets dropped. They reject it. So now you're starting to get a little bit worried. You're like, I must have said something. I must have done something that has upset my good friend. I don't know what I've done, but clearly they're quite annoyed with me. They're quite upset with me. And you start to feel that feeling of dread as to whether the friendship isn't going to survive. You know what's happened. So you send them another email. You know, just checking you're okay. You seem a little bit off this morning. You haven't responded to any of my emails. Everything okay? You and me okay? And you get a, a an email back going, can't talk. Don't want to talk. You know. Wow. Okay. I must definitely must have done something wrong. And now your feelings are really quite strong that something has happened. Yeah. You're going home in the evening and your friend runs up to you. And you're like, well, what are they going to, what's going to happen now? And they go, oh, I hope you're okay. I've had an awful day. He said, this morning, um, I left my glasses at home and I can, you know, I'm like, I'm really blind. I can barely see anyone, you know, so I've been ignoring people all day. And also I, I, I had an ear infection. I went swimming. My ears all blocked up. So I can't hear that well. And my email's been broken. I think someone's hacked into it. And I left my phone at home. The kids have just been messing about with it, answering random phone calls or deleting things. So it's just been one of those days. And now you understand why it is she, your friend hasn't been in contact with you at all. And suddenly your emotions start to change about it. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> one of those things. But all day long, you've been stewing in those emotions, which, which were real emotions. They were genuine experiences, genuine neurotransmitter releases and neurology being switched on and physiological changes in your body. They were real, but based on something that was inaccurate. So real or not real? Well, they were real feelings, but based on a misunderstanding, based on a non-real experience, something that didn't actually happen. So we can get trapped in thinking the emotions we have are genuine and accurate. And that's not always true. And many of us have experienced that. You know, sometimes you'll get a text from someone and you go, what? And you send something back annoyed because of how outrageous and, and you realize you've completely misread or, or misread the nuance or tonality of that text. And then you've started that cycle of misunderstanding again. Another question I was asked was, yeah, but people make you, people make you angry, don't they? And this is also people make you stressed. 
very, very core thing to think about. Can people really make you angry or really make you stressed? Now, as we go around the world, it really feels like somebody does something and then we feel stressed or angry as a result of it. That's our genuine experience and pretty much everyone on the call would have had that experience of what that feels like to be triggered. That's the word we use, isn't it? Triggered by somebody else's action or a situation or an environment that makes us feel this way. Notice the word makes us. But it's actually not completely true. It's not completely true because it's not them, it's not their actions that make us feel that way, even though it really feels that way. There's a little gap between what they did and what we make that mean, how we interpret that. And we can interpret that in a millisecond as a result of our good friend, neuroplasticity. Should we have a quick look at neuroplasticity? I know people, for some reason, really quite enjoy this when I go, oh, not that one, that one. When I go tiny, it's tiny Phil, hello. <laughs> so neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity is this. We send a signal, let's say, if you're watching this, if you're listening to this on a podcast, it's going to make slightly less sense, but uh, we'll see how we go. So we send a, send a signal down the red neuron, and uh, at the end of the red neuron, it has a, a little gap where it's got to jump either to the orange one or to the green one, and let's say the orange one is uh, stress, okay? So we said, oh, just move that around, didn't mean to do that. So we send the signal down the... Uh, red neuron there we go and when we do that in this case it jumps through to the orange neuron and triggers a stress response neuroplasticity is the fact that the more you use a certain part of your nervous system the stronger and more important and significant it becomes in your whole nervous system's wiring so the more you use a particular pathway stronger it becomes so in this case if we send more signals down that red neuron that land in the oh just jump to slide there let's do it again so here it comes goes to the orange if we keep on sending signals down the orange pathway then we start to get a change in the shape of our nervous system where the orange pathway moves towards the red pathway the little gap gets shorter and narrower and therefore it's much easier for that signal to jump carried by neurotransmitters across the synapse to the orange pathway of stress and not only does the orange pathway move towards this red pathway but the green pathway which is the pathway to calm goes on a little journey goes wandering off because i'm not being used here i'll go somewhere else now it becomes much much more difficult to jump the gap from the red pathway to the green one because there's a, physically a larger gap to, to be carried over. This is neuroplasticity and it's a problem because of course the more we run pathways of stress the easier it becomes to get into stress which is why we say states are contagious. The more you're in a state the more you feel it in yourself and the more you can bring it to other people because you're suddenly in a very responsive reactive way to people. But also neuroplasticity is great, which means if we spend time triggering the pathway, so we push the signal from the red neuron to the lovely green neuron of calm, if we keep on pushing that 
signal across, which is more tricky because it's further away, then after a very short time, because neuroplasticity is always on, the green pathway will move closer to the red one and now the orange one will move away and fade away. So this is always going on. It's always going on. Neuroplasticity is just a fact. That's what happens and it happens all the time. It's always happening. It's always responsive to change. So if you spend a lot of time experiencing the world as a stressful place, it's very easy then to get into stress. So that's why we can have an instant response to someone. Someone looks at us in a certain way, we may suddenly feel ourselves getting stressed, getting hot, getting bothered, getting angry. And that's neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity has made that pathway so close, it doesn't really take very much that what's called the threshold is very low for that signal to jump over and cause a, a stress response. But in that little gap, that's really where we have the ability to make a choice, to respond in one way or another. Now, of course, through this wiring process of neuroplasticity, the more we get used to responding in a stressed way to particular things people say or things that happen, the more it seems that that thing has caused our feelings. But it's still not true. That thing occurred and then we triggered a pathway, we didn't mean to, but we did trigger a pathway. We jumped a little gap and we got into that stress pathway. So is the stress response real? Are the hormones transmitters real? Absolutely. Is the event causing it? Not completely. The event is like an invitation. This is a, something I'd really uh, suggest you consider as an interesting conversation. Instead of thinking of things as triggers, they triggered me, they made me. Change it to, they invited me. They invited me. Now, if someone's inviting you, like to a party or to a football match or to a rave or to a heavy rock concert or to a ballet, when they've invited you, you have an option to accept or decline. That, that's a true invitation. It's not a compulsion. You don't have to go. You ought to go. It's a genuine invi invitation. Would you like to come here and do this with me? When you start to see people's behaviours that are in the past making your nervous system get all excited in a negative way, instead of thinking them as making you or causing you or triggering you, think they're inviting me they're inviting me and then ask yourself do I want to accept or decline that invitation now initially that will feel quite tough because your nervous system is so used to going whoosh from one neurone to another and so it will feel like there isn't a choice it will feel like that's just how I respond but it's really waking up to that idea that this is an invitation and if you want to know more about this then the do book is the place to go where i talk a lot about this whole idea that people do stuff you know people behave in certain ways and then we respond unconsciously and often unintentionally to their behaviors but usually in a way that's not that useful for us so identifying that this is something that we are generating rather than something they've made happen to us is so important. Now, one of the, on one of the courses I was running, a university course, 
we were talking about the stuff in America at the moment and somebody was saying you know that makes me angry makes me angry what they did to George Floyd and what's going on in, in America with the race inequality you know what about that now that's a good question and the answer is still the same that thing happened and then we have a response to it now our first initial response may be emotional because you know those pathways are being triggered but if we look at history if we look at uh, people like martin luther king and gandhi as examples of making change within very difficult circumstances they may have got angry about it but they also realized that that was not going to change the situation they needed to take action and, and these guys particularly took peaceful action they chose even though their neurology wanted to go into being annoyed and cross and outraged they realized if they wanted to move things forwards they needed to take a different emotional response to this very tricky and challenging event and to instead trigger different pathways pathways of creativity pathways of passive non-violent communication pathways of love and compassion different pathways and you can imagine how tricky that would be for the neurology which is ready to jump into and angry to to have the capacity to pause that pathway that's ready to go you know the trigger is just you know on the edge of being pulled and instead to jump into a different pathway completely different pathway but that's where change and stuff occurs in life isn't it that's where kind of real revolutionary change happens that when we decide to not follow what our past has told us what people do and instead to say i choose to respond to this very unfamiliar or possibly familiar situation in a different way so again some questions come in let's have a quick look what we got um is that a typical setting for some of those on the autistic spectrum i'm uh, not sure what you mean by that maybe tell me a bit more about that debbie what is what the typical setting uh and claudine says i used the wrong pathways in the past and now i have a in the past weekend and now i have a pain in my neck excellent well done <laughs> and then we've got lots of people saying hi and how stressful life is and all sorts of stuff debbie tell me a bit more about your question about autistic spectrum stuff and then we'll we'll answer it okay so um i don't know if tony's on the call he was asking me specifically about that but anybody got any questions about this whole idea of emotions are real but they that are the result of to some extent past training and sometimes they're a result of ancient evolutionary training you know we talked about this before that there's a a, a a natural bias within the nervous system to respond to negatives more strongly than positives yeah so um the more we can step out of existent pathways and ask ourselves really important question is this useful is this useful 
Some of you may have heard me talk about the, the book, The Ten Questions. And in, uh, in The Ten Questions, there's an extra question, which I have talked about before in these seminars, but it's worth mentioning again. Uh, which is this, this lovely woman I knew, because <clears throat> all the 10 questions came from talking to people, uh, patients who said, <clears throat> I'll be talking to them, I'd be asking them a question, which is a cool thing you do when you coach. And uh, I'd ask them a question, they go, ooh, now that is a really good question. And I kind of noted down these questions because you could see life changing. It's one of the things I find really interesting, those moments when you can literally see something shifting in someone's life, someone's future is different. And they often came as a result of interesting questions. So I wrote a book called The Ten Questions, which is full of those questions. And then I met this woman and she was telling me about this experience. She was working for the BBC and she was at a party and there was a famous playwright and she was doing some work in South Africa and Soweto around drama and townships. She thought it'd be really good to get this guy involved. And then she thought, you know, what, what would people think if I went up and talked to him about it? Would they be positive or negative? What would they think of me? And would he be interested in it? Would he be bothered? Would it be difficult? She had all those normal kind of questions that we run in our heads. And eventually she went, you know, what's really important here? She asked herself, what is really important here? And she thought, what's really important is I talk to that guy so we have a chance to see if he's interested in working with these kids in Soweto who really need every resource they can get. That's the most important thing. That's more important than my uh, upset or what people think about me, anything like that. So she made that decision and she turned to talk to the guy and he'd left, he'd left the party. So she told me this story. She said, I really realised that's an interesting question, uh, which is, what's really important here? What really matters here? And the same thing I think applies in this whole idea of what is your response going to be by asking yourself, what is really important here? How do I want to bring myself to this moment? How do I want to bring myself to this moment? All right, we've got some other questions here, so let's answer these. So Debbie says, is it true in autistic patterns that they are closer to the orange pathway as a default? Uh, in this case, the orange pathway in our example was a stress pathway. It does depend. Um, with autism, one of the things you can get is you can get a kind of hypersensitivity, so a readiness to jump into pathways of anxiety or fear, absolutely. But also you can get um, a stepping away from certain emotional responses. So very often in autism, they'll have responses that people don't predict that a normal interaction should have. Well, they'll say something and they'll take it very literally or they won't get the emotional nuance of it so it could be different pathways as well pathways more of uh, disassociation where they're almost observing so less emotional pathways as well okay uh tony says i'm here can you prove we have that space as i beat myself up when i miss it yeah i don't know if you heard the story i talked about at the beginning about um, a friend who seems to um, blank you the whole day long and it turns and you get more and more stressed about it and upset about it at the end of the day when you talk to them you find out they weren't blanking you someone's someone else has got their phone their internet hasn't been working they've been wearing their glasses today so they haven't seen you in that moment you go oh you completely change how you respond to that event so that is the gap that we have this capacity to change 
But as I said earlier, if we've spent a lot of time training ourselves into being very triggered, very responding to certain things, certain people, certain ways of being, then we'll have to be really on it to catch that triggering of the first neuron that leads to the second neuron that leads to the whole emotions. And sometimes we won't catch it, absolutely. I mean, I'm pretty sure everybody on the call today, no matter how wise and well-trained you are, including me, in the last couple of weeks, at least once, has found yourself in a shitty state. When you really shouldn't, because we're now all evolved people who know all about this stuff, and sometimes some of even us lecture about it. So we would never, of course, we would never ever do this, but we do, right? And that's partly because of the training we've had of getting into bad states and that being familiar, partly because of our evolutionary wiring, all sorts of things. The very first thing you should do if you found that you've got into the wrong state, first of all, spot it, become aware of it. It's like they say in any addiction, very first thing is to notice that you're drinking too much or injecting too much or whatever, that you're doing that behavior. First thing, be aware. Second thing is be nice. The Probably the worst thing you can do once you realize that you've triggered a pathway that's, that you didn't mean to, that you didn't want to, that you know, if you were able to really step back in hindsight, you would just wouldn't do it, then you need to bring kindness to that. Beating yourself up just further wires you into stress, anger, self-loathing pathways, which again, are more of the kind of pathways you don't want to be in. Good rule of thumb, remember we've talked, I'm sure many of you will know, we talked about the pit and the pit is defined as anything that doesn't make your life great or move your life forwards so anything non-life enhancing really good way to spot the pit you can drop it down guys what is the answer what's one of the simplest ways to spot whether you're in the pit or not i'm going to give you a few moments to think about that while i read through the other comments it's easier to wrap with negative as a whole there is as I said, there's a slight bias within the nervous system to do it. It doesn't, it's, so I guess it is a bit easier, but uh, it's not really easier because in the long run, it makes life much more com complicated. So generally, if you can pause and think how you want to respond, it makes life easier. Use the LP and the gap to alter the outcome in the self. Yes, absolutely. So the lightning process, mindfulness, CBT, lots of processes are all about holding that uh, that moment when you feel compelled to go down into the crappy neurons, the res you know instantly angry stress response neurons. You can notice that compulsion to do it, that feeling, that draw, that magnetic draw to it, and go. And no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Um, another example I often talk about is. If you're on a bus and you're sitting next to somebody and they say, I hate people like you, then you may notice you start to have a response, probably not a very positive response. But as you look at them, you notice they look like they're probably not mentally well. And they say, I hate people like you from the planet Venus. You drive me bonkers coming over in your spaceships, leaving bananas everywhere. They're like, oh, okay. 
Now, how do you respond to when she says, I hate people like you? You're like, yeah, whatever. And that is an example again of the gap where we're realizing that's not an appropriate response. Even though the trigger is that trigger words the same thing, I hate people like you. Now we realize it's I hate people like you from the planet Venus, leaving you bananas everywhere. You're like, yeah, you know what? I don't have to respond in that way. And again, it shows us that we have this response. With kids, you can get the same thing. If you remember young kids, they may go, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Now, if somebody normally says that, you may feel quite upset. But if it's your kid saying it because you haven't given another ice cream when they just had one, you may go, yeah, whatever. You know, so we have this ability to use that gap in certain contexts where we haven't got that emotional avalanche coming at us. So if we have it there, we have it. We just need to work out how to mine that more effectively. Got some more questions here. Uh, what would you say to people who say that anger is a good thing, that it can spur us into action and make change? Hmm, interesting. So we've all been angry in the past, I'm sure, and possibly in the very recent past. When we look at it, if we had the full palette of emotions to choose from, the, the full uh, banquet, the buffet of emotions, all the emotions that we've ever experienced in our lives, would we choose anger? question now there may be there may be times when you would and they're quite quite few and far between it's usually things like when you're being attacked you know when you're physically being threatened or attacked you might be angry that you might that might be a useful behavior but in most of the other places where you've been angry when you cross with your kids annoyed with your partner shouted at somebody in traffic was it the most useful was that most life enhancing was it that useful use of that moment in your life that you'll never have again? The chances are it wasn't. If you want to be motivated, there are better ways to get motivated than to be angry. I did see a talk once by an interesting guy. And he said, uh, he was talking about people's mission. And he said, do something you're passionate about. Now that could be something you love, or it could be something you, uh, I've, I'm furious that that exists, you know, that racism exists or this exists and I want to do something about it. In that case, yeah, okay. Uh, that recognition, this is not okay and changing it to, into action, completely fine. The problem is if you sit in the anger, you just go, oh, I'm just so annoyed about it and then you don't do anything about it. So do you transmute it? Um, Tony. Can certain mental health conditions like borderline personality disorder make it harder um, than so-called normal people like extremely sensitive people? Hmm. So borderline personality disorder, which is a, a kind of medicalization of, of this inability to effectively manage your states, that's really what it is. People are not managing their states very well and very often, not second positioning, not thinking, what's it like for the other person? It's a very common thing that you get. Um, so you can change that if somebody wants to. We talked a lot about this last time. We talked about victim behavior uh, when people take the victim role in, uh, which is often linked to BPD. And extremely sensitive people. Extremely sensitive people, basically what's happened is their, their neurons have got so busy it doesn't take very much to trigger that second pathway a little tiny stimulus will switch it but we've worked with loads of people with extreme sensitivities to chemicals electromagnetic radiation emotions perfumes 
and those things can be changed so it is possible to change if you're open to the idea um if you've caused harm to others it's hard to be kind to yourself hmm, interesting so this is again a common thing that people say you know um how could i ever be kind to myself when i've done this wrong to other people there's a question which is does you beating yourself up help them in any way does, does that does that right that wrong does it make their lives better all we've got then is now two people whose lives are getting messed up so um i would question that uh, and ask yourself is that important is it useful does that help you know if you look at 12 step one of the things they they don't say one of the steps is not beat yourself up it's like you know a total sort out your your wrongdoings and make make an inventory and go and apologize where appropriate and, and make good but it doesn't say beat yourself up for it and in fact pretty much in no in no kind of therapeutic uh, approach does it ever say beating yourself up is a great thing because because it isn't nobody wins and in fact what you do is you turn yourself into victim that's, that's what happens um we are human and to feel nothing could have an adverse effect on our humanity interesting well i'd, I'd question that a little bit uh if we are aware of other people aware of ourselves and choose to bring as much kindness and compassion into the world does that make us less human is that going to improve or decrease humanity is that going to help the species now is it likely that the dalai lama uh, gandhi martin luther king everyone everyone else on that list lived a perfect life where they had no emotions that were negative no of course not we, we are humans and and we don't get it right all the time absolutely but maybe what we want to do is learn from that and reflect on that and go right how can i how can i bring myself as well as i can to the next moment so that would be my answer to that uh we've got some answers here loss of sense of humor a key sign of being the pit excellent well done kids um if you don't spot it immediately and you're immersed in a bad state can you still change that state and change that pathway or does it have to get caught quickly that's a good question if we look at the example right at the top when we talked about people um, you know your friend blank, apparently blanking you you can be stewing in that all day but as soon as they explain oh yeah you know, i haven't you know I, did, I wasn't ignoring you my kids have got the phone and so on immediately your emotions will change so it, you don't have to spend the same amount of time getting out of that state as you did to get in it or how long you've been in it uh, but certainly you know the longer you're in a state the more hormones you produce the more neurology you switched on yeah you've got a bit more work to do so it's, it's best to catch it as quickly as you can but the other the other thing that's worth pointing out is we've all all been in rubbish states at some point is when you've been in not a very good state at some point you get out of it now that may be in a minute five minutes a day a week a month a year but at some point you will get out of it so if you can get out of it why not bring it closer why not do it now if you're going to get out of it um at what point would you say it's helped to address the roots of an, of an unhelpful pattern a younger part for instance or do you think we can often override the past pattern and, and part with repeated state change okay so there's two slightly different model, models here one is um, sometimes old events are kind of re-stimulating pathways and we can spend a lot of time 
settling that pathway, but we keep on going back into an old conversation. Absolutely, sometimes our past can set us up to make these running these pathways simpler and easier, negative pathways. So sometimes absolutely going back and resolving some stuff is fine. Uh, but equally, I would say it doesn't always have to be the case. You know, um, For instance, when you work with phobias, as many of you on the call know, you can get rid of phobias pretty quickly. You don't really have to know very much about what was going on, what happened, why it happened. You can just resolve it. So uh, I would always say, do the simplest thing first. So if just teaching someone to deeply relax allows them to access the state of relaxation and then go through world feeling not stressed anymore, that's fine. If you find that they keep on kicking back into some old event, then it may need clearing up. Would you recommend constant brain rehearsal in changing a response to a trigger, especially when the stress response has been reinforced over a number of years? Um, yeah, that might be a good a good approach. It, again, it may be that there's some event you need to resolve that's just still, you know, echoing in your system. If 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 you're working hard and you're not getting the change you want, generally don't work harder, work differently. <laughs> so kind of think, right? Have I missed something? Do I need some input from somebody else? Is there another way to look at this? Uh, sometimes change is incremental, but if it's if it's keeps on being tiny baby steps over months then that would suggest something's missing in the process of change in my experience okay great questions thank you very much for this making me making me have to think and work which is always good uh, maybe not the working but the thinking so what we're going to do to uh, to finish we've got another 20 minutes but we're going to spend 20 minutes focusing on the other side of the conversation which is okay how do we get calm now one of the ways to get calm is to catch it to stop it and then to shift ourselves in a calm space another thing of course is a bit like going to the gym if we spend more time calm then it will be easier to access the calm pathways in that moment when our brain has to choose which way to go because it's got a bit more of a, a motorway into calm because we've practiced it so it's not just having an ability to access it in that moment there's a kind of a like a like like running a marathon you don't just run the marathon you want to spend some time training yourself up so that then running the marathon seems quite easy uh, <clears throat> if you make change to responses go forever with neuroplasticity or can it come back hmm, interesting question I think it depends a bit in that if you if we look at the example of phobias once you've resolved a phobia it's gone but people can reinstall it they can remind themselves again about how awful it is so it kind of depends how strong the new pathway is how eroded and erased the old pathway is and that, that kind of balance if the strong the new pathway is super strong and the old pathway is faded quite well then you should be good but if they're about even then it could go either way uh george says hello george nice to see you uh i'd like to ask how can i get out of crash state twice as fast next time <laughs> well uh two things spot it be aware when it happens and secondly practice the opposite 
coach state, relax state, wherever you want, so that you're even more neurologically familiar with it, which is what we're gonna do now. The Mind-Body Connection Podcast. The Body and Mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker.